What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. So eight presidents, Nixon, Ford, Carter, Reagan, Bush, Clinton, Bush, and Obama, have all pursued in varying degrees a cooperative relationship with the great, glorious, and growing China, the People's Republic of, a partnership that was forged in the beginning primarily to balance power against the Soviet Union, but it also took shape at a time when China was, frankly, relatively weak. But that's all changed now. The Soviet Union is gone, and China is big, modern, sophisticated, and becoming very well armed. So the question is, is that a good thing for this partnership? Or are we seeing the seeds of a rivalry sown that will inevitably sprout across the Pacific as hostility? And if so, what will China represent to the next president and the next president and the next president? Well, that sounds like the makings of a debate, so let's have it. Yes or no to this statement. China and the U.S. are long-term enemies. A debate from Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan. We are at the Kaufman Music Center in New York City. As always, our debate will go in three rounds, and then our live audience here in New York will vote to choose the winner, and only one side wins. The motion again. China and the U.S. are long-term enemies. Let's meet the team arguing for the motion. Please, ladies and gentlemen, welcome Peter Brooks. And Peter, you are a uh, former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Asia and Pacific Affairs and a member of the U.S.-China Economic and Security Review Commission, graduate of Annapolis, a Navy commander. You served in the NSA and the CIA. Curious to know what keeps you up at night. Well, actually, I've been a bit sleepless. Uh, I was reading my uh, colleague here on my side of the motion, John Mearsheimer's uh, biography, and I found out he went to West Point. So, uh, you know, being the giver that I am, I decided that I've called, I'll call a truce for tonight and until the Army-Navy game. All right. Thanks very much, Peter Brooks. And, and we want to give you the chance to introduce your partner once more. That's right. Well, next, sitting next to me and on this side of the motion is uh, Professor John Mearsheimer of the University of uh, Chicago. And he is also the author of several books, including one published in 2001 called The Tragedy of Great Power Politics. In that, John Mearsheimer, you predicted 
an aggressive and destabilizing rise of China. Uh, We've heard you say that when you go out to China, which you do, that you're like a fish out of water over there, with one exception. Intellectually, you say you're in your element when you're in China. What do you mean by that? Well, I'm a realist, a realpolitiker, and virtually all the Chinese I know, both policymakers and scholars, are realists at their core. Thank you, John Mearsheimer. The team arguing for the motion, China and the U.S. are long-term enemies. And we have two debaters arguing against that motion. Please, ladies and gentlemen, first welcome Robert Daly. Robert Daly, you're director of the Kissinger Institute on China and the United States at the Wilson Center. Uh, You lived in China 11 years. Uh, You served at the U.S. Embassy there. And in the 90s, very fun fact, you helped produce the Chinese-language version of Sesame Street. (laughs) Uh, you've also, you're also a trained interpreter. Uh, you've interpreted between Jiang Zemin and Jimmy Carter, but apparently they were not the most difficult interpreting assignments you ever had because what were the most difficult assignments? Yes, that would be uh, Dr. Henry Kissinger at uh, the bottom of one octave and Elmo the Muppet about three octaves up. Uh, equally lucid speakers, but sometimes difficult to follow. <laughs> and tell us, Robert Daly, who your partner is. I'm very pleased to be working today with Kevin Rudd, the former Prime Minister of Australia and the current president of the Asia Society Policy Institute. Ladies and gentlemen, Kevin Rudd. You, you are also a longtime China scholar. You are fluent in Mandarin, and you even have a Chinese name given to you by a Chinese teacher. What is it? Lu Kerwen. And what does that mean? It means a continental overcomer of the classics. <laughs> can, can the classics be overcome? Did you do that? No, and 40 years later, they remain unovercome. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the team arguing against the motion. We're moving on to round one, opening statements by each debater in turn. Our motion is this, China and the U.S. are long-term enemies. Speaking first for the motion and making his way to the lectern, John Mearsheimer, professor of political science and co-director of the Program on International Security Policy at the University of Chicago. Ladies and gentlemen, John Mearsheimer. I want to start with two preliminary points. One is the argument here is not that we're destined to fight a war. It's that these two countries will be long-term enemies. You want to remember that during the Cold War, the United States and the Soviet Union were enemies, but they never fought a war, thankfully. Second, when you talk about the future, there's no way you can talk about it without a theory of international politics or a theory of great power politics. And the reason is we have no evidence about the future because the future hasn't happened yet. My story basically goes like this. If you look at the international system, the way it's organized, there are three characteristics of that system that force states to compete for power and to pursue greater and greater increments of power. The first characteristic of the system is that there's no higher authority that sits above states. As I like to say to students, in the international system, when you dial 911, there's nobody at the other end. That means it is, in effect, a self-help system. Characteristic two is that all states have some offensive military capability, and there are invariably a few states that have a lot of offensive military capability. The third feature of the system has to do with intentions. It's almost impossible to divine the future intentions of other states. 
What this means is that when you operate in a world where there's no higher authority you can turn to when you get into trouble, and you may end up next to a store, a country that's very powerful and has malign intentions, you quickly figure out that the best way to survive is to be very powerful. Now, what this means in practical terms is that states want to, number one, dominate their region of the world, and number two, they want to make sure they don't have a peer competitor. That means you want to make sure there's not another state in the system that dominates its region of the world like you do. Let's talk a little bit about the United States. The United States is the only regional hegemon in modern history. Most Americans don't think about this, but the founding fathers and their successors went to enormous lengths to ensure that we would dominate the Western Hemisphere. Second goal, which is reflected in U.S. foreign policy in the 20th century, is to make sure we do not have a peer competitor. There were four potential peer competitors in the 20th century. Imperial Germany... Imperial Japan, Nazi Germany, and the Soviet Union. The United States played a key role in putting all four of those countries on the scrap heap of history. Now let's talk about China. As China gets more and more powerful, and that's going to happen, the question you have to ask yourself is what will China do with all that military power? My argument is that China will imitate the United States. They'd be crazy not to. They're going to try to dominate Asia the way we dominate the Western Hemisphere. And it is going to be an intense security competition. But the Chinese are going to do this not because they have a voracious appetite for tromping on people or they have a particular aggressive gene. It's because the best way to survive in the international system is to be a regional hegemon. They understand that, and at the same time, we're not going to let it happen. Thank you, John Mearsheimer. Our motion is China and the U.S. are long-term enemies. And here to make his opening statement against the motion, Robert Daly. He is director of the Kissinger Institute on China and the United States and a former cultural exchanges officer at the U.S. Embassy in Beijing. Ladies and gentlemen, Robert Daly. Well, thanks to all of you for coming out tonight. Remember that our motion is that the United States and China are long-term enemies, are now and will remain enemies, fundamentally hostile powers who wish each other ill. For enemies, the prospect of war is always in the foreground of the relationship, although not all enemies fight. I want to emphasize from the beginning that the threat of enmity between the United States and China is real, and it is not yet clear that we are going to have the wisdom to avoid this outcome. Our opponents have done a wonderful job of of raising this alarm in very stark terms. But we do have to note that we are not enemies now, despite our current concerns. The U.S. is not containing China's rise. In fact, we have promoted that rise. We have aided and abetted it. Trade. China is our third largest export market after Canada and Mexico. The China market is essential to the work of American corporations and the Americans they hire. Apple, GM, Qualcomm, Intel. China now invests in the United States. Cumulative foreign direct investment, $54 billion, which puts 80,000 Americans to work. 7.3 million Chinese tourists will have visited here by 2021, bringing $85 billion annually. We benefit from trade. We also benefit from Chinese talent. Over 2 million Chinese students have studied here since the opening in 1979, and many of them have remained to contribute to our society. Over 2 million Chinese 
immigrants now live in the United States. It is the third largest foreign-born group after Mexicans and Indians, and they contribute greatly to every aspect of the society. It was a friend of mine at the Heritage Foundation, Mr. Brooks's organization, a couple of years ago, who said United States-China relations are not just political, economic, and military. They are now personal. The Chinese have become our friends, neighbors, colleagues, co-parishioners. There is scant mention of individual well-being in John's theory. Nation-states are the fundamental players in his anarchic world. But it is individual human beings that are imperiled by this contest for dominance. What does enmity look like? John Mearsheimer himself provides the answer in the final chapter of the tragedy of great power politics. He says that even if we avoid full-scale war, which would be Armageddon, we will face crises, major disputes that threaten war, an arms race, which I don't think we can afford, proxy wars in which third-country citizens will die for our purported benefit, bait-and-bleed strategies to lure the other country into costly, foolish wars, The U.S. will begin barring Chinese students from its universities and we will cut down travel restrictions. That's just a partial list. Our opponents say that we are are now and will remain long-term enemies because of a theory and because of Chinese intentions and capabilities which dictate that it must be so. This is their idea. We should answer them. We must answer them as Ebenezer Scrooge answered the ghost of Christmas yet to come. Scrooge says, are these the shadows of things that will be Or are they the shadows of things that may be only? Men's courses will foreshadow certain ends, to which, if persevered in, they must lead. But if the courses be departed from, the ends will change. Say it is thus. The message that Kevin and I bring tonight is that it can be thus and it must be. That is why you must vote against the motion tonight. Thank you. Thank you, Robert Daly. I'm John Donvan. Round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate continues in just a moment. And a reminder of what's going on, we are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two teams of two, arguing over this motion, China and the U.S. are long-term Enemies. You've heard the first two opening statements and now on to the third. Debating in support of the motion, China and the U.S. are long-term enemies. Peter Brooks, he is senior fellow at the Heritage Foundation's Davis Institute for National Security and Foreign Policy and former Deputy Secretary of Defense. Ladies and gentlemen, Peter Brooks. In my opinion, China and the United States are strategic competitors, they're strategic rivals, and they're even enemies. The rhetoric itself bears this out. If you listen to the Chinese, they say that the United States is trying to encircle or contain China. The U.S. wants to prevent China's rise. This is coming out of Beijing. The U.S. feels, and you see this in commentators here in the United States, that China is trying to push the United States out of Asia. That China wants to replace the United States as the preeminent power in the Pacific, as the number one world power. Both sides agree that there is a very high level of strategic distrust between the United States and China. It gets worse. The United States and China share important interests in several global hotspots or flashpoints. The oldest, of course, is Taiwan. Not getting a lot of press lately. Things have been quiet. But China says it's part of the People's Republic of China. The United States says don't try to change the status quo by force. China refuses to renounce the use of force. And the world, uh, the U.S. would probably resist China trying to unify Taiwan with China using force. Another old one is the Korean Peninsula. Most people don't think about this. China and the United States fought there during the Korean War. 
China backs North Korea, its ally. The U.S. backs South Korea, its ally. War on the Korean Peninsula, in my uh, estimation, is possible at any time. If you talk to U.S. forces Korea, their motto is, ready to fight tonight. In the South China Sea, China now claims 80% of that body of water. By Beijing's measure, the South China Sea is essentially a Chinese lake. They're building islands on coral reefs and rocky outcrops. On this islands, they're also building ports and airfields. Of particular interest is that one on one of the islands, the runway is 3,000 meters long. That's about 10,000 feet, longer than any commercial aircraft would need for landing. But it will host any of China's military aircraft. The U.S. is concerned, to say the least. Ceding sovereignty rights to China could give Beijing the green light to control freedom of the seas and air in the South China Sea. 30% of the world's uh, seaborne commerce flows through the South China Sea. $1.2 trillion of that is American. 80% of Japan's, South Korea, and Taiwan's, both either allies or partners of the United States, 80% of their imported energy goes through the South China Sea. Scholars on both sides of the Pacific are talking and writing about the what-if questions if crisis comes between the U.S. and China. China's involved in a massive military modernization program, double-digit increases in its defense budget over the last 25 years. They're building aircraft carriers. They've, uh, they're sending their nuclear deterrent to sea in, in fleet ballistic missile submarines. They're building stealth fighters. They're exercising significant cyber warfare capabilities, including against the United States, and preparing to fight in space. The U.S. is countering with a Pacific rebalance. Sixty percent of American ships are going to the Pacific. Top U.S. weapons technology is being sent to the Pacific theater first. That includes F-22s, littoral combat ships, the J-35 strike fighter. None of this sounds very friendly, isn't it? That's because it isn't. It's clear that China and the United States are competitors, rivals, indeed enemies. This isn't going to change anytime soon. I strongly recommend that you vote for this motion. Thank you very much. Thank you, Peter Brooks. And that motion is China and the U.S. are long-term enemies. Our final debater against the motion, Kevin Rudd. He is the inaugural president of the Asia Society Policy Institute and former prime minister of Australia. Ladies and gentlemen, Kevin Rudd. The proposition we're looking at tonight is a serious one. Using the term enemy in international relations is something we rarely do, but not in this proposition. Think of the definition a country you are fighting a war against, the soldiers, etc., of that country. Let us not gloss over the gravity of the language which is being employed in this proposition. John said before you needed a theory to explain what is going on because we can't predict the future. But then occurs the first fundamental logical step in his argument. He says that we should take, therefore, at face value the proposition that a theory of international relations can be reliably predictive. There is something that the scholars would describe to as overcoming physics envy. <laughs> what do they mean by that? That there's the hard sciences out there, the biological sciences, the physical sciences, they have predictive laws, we can use that method, and in the social sciences, devise the same sort of principles which can therefore predict human behaviour. Well, pigs might fly. <laughs> there is a huge body of counter-evidence to that, 
But for this to be the foundational proposition of John's argument, that because he has a theory called offensive realism, international relations, it is by definition predictive of where the United States and China are and will be, is of itself logically flawed. The second logical flaw in the argument is as follows. Uh, He said before, it is clear to us all that we cannot predict the future intentions of states. I think I got that right, John. I then listened carefully to John list four separate predictions about China's attitude. You have said they want to be a regional hegemon. That's a statement of Chinese intentions. And that we, the United States, won't want them to do that. That's a statement of American intentions. You cannot have your cake and eat it too, because by being so predictive, it infers that conflict and war are somehow inevitable. I also have a theoretical premise. Some would say it's Marxist. Listen to this. Politics, international politics, is the art of looking for trouble, finding it everywhere, diagnosing it incorrectly, and applying the wrong remedies. So says Groucho Marx. (laughs) When we look at the proposition which is before us, it is theoretically flawed, but what I am fundamentally concerned about is additional argument against this proposition. It is dangerously determinist. It says that we, through diplomacy or political leadership, cannot affect an action. It's a bit like saying that Nixon and Mao had nothing to do through their individual diplomatic activity in changing the course of the future of US-China relations. Well, they did through leadership. The point is this. There is nothing determinist about international relations. It is a matter of what the theorists would describe as human agency. We get to make the choice. An alternative approach is what I call constructive realism. Recognise that there are fundamental differences in the East China Sea, the South China Sea, over Taiwan, on cyber, in space, on human rights, but at the same time recognise that there are multiple domains of constructive engagement. How do you deal conjointly with the problem of North Korean nuclear proliferation? How do we grow the global economy through our combined growth strategies? These are areas of constructive engagement which can build political capital over time and help us deal with the fundamental problems of the future in this relationship as well. Thank you, Kevin Rudd. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our motion is China and the U.S. are long-term enemies. Now we move on to round two. Round two is where the debaters address one another directly and take questions from me and you, our live audience here in New York City. Our motion is this. China and the U.S. are long-term enemies. We have two debaters arguing for this motion, John Mearsheimer and Peter Brooks. We've heard them argue that... While they are not predicting war, they are, in a sense, predicting something similar to Cold War, where hostility will rule between the two nations, where there is destined to be competition in terms of arms race, proxy wars, security crises. They say that a rising China inevitably will want to dominate its region, which puts it in conflict, serious conflict with the United States, and that at present China's own rhetoric seems to prefigure this. The team arguing against the motion, Kevin Rudd and Robert Daly, they say the term enemy is a word that must be used with extreme caution um, and that there are very many venues in which the United States and China can work out their differences, which are real. They say that What their opponents are talking about is far, far from inevitable. I want to go to the team that's arguing 
for the motion and particularly to John Mearsheimer because you put forward um, what's turned into the theory that for the last few minutes we've heard uh, much uh, critique of, and it's the theory that there's an inevitability at present to uh, the sense of a conflict between the U.S. and China because of China's growing influence, power, and natural aspirations. Your opponents are, are saying that you're contradicting yourself by saying, on the one hand, uh, we can't really know the intentions of China, and on the other hand, that you are citing the intentions of China. Interesting attack on your position. I'd like to know what your response is to it. Yes, my three points about the structure of the system. Uh, the third point was that you cannot know intentions. That was a starting assumption. And what I did was I took all three of the assumptions and then you mixed them together. Once you mix all of the assumptions together, you do get certainty about intentions in that states do pursue hegemony. Show me a country that had the raw capability to dominate its region of the world and pass that up. Not a single case. Show me a case where the United States was up against a potential peer competitor and decided to sit it out. Not a single case. Uh, Robert Daly. Yes, I actually agree with our opponents about China's ideal state of affairs, that China would, of course, very much like to be the hegemon of East Asia. The question is not what China wants. The question in international relations is what China will settle for. It can't have everything that it wants in its fondest dreams, and it knows it. Why? It faces tremendous domestic pressures, problems of political legitimacy and stability, the challenge of continued economic development. You all know that the Chinese economy is slowing. We are feeling it here in our stock market. China has no allies to speak of. It has no soft power. It is also, unlike the United States when we formed the Monroe Doctrine, surrounded by very strong countries. So the issue here is not can China do this. I think they're making, as I pointed out in my, in my uh, lecture, all of the stubborn facts about China's rise and their moder military modernization. But the fact of the matter is, is that enemy does not necessarily mean war. Look it up in the dictionary. It's, it only means someone who opposes something or someone. No, and we, have, we already have that. We have that, we have that situation with, with China today. So it's about ambitions and aspirations. The Oxford Dictionary says a country you are fighting a war against, the soldiers, etc., of that country. And we're debating under Oxford rules, I was told. <laughs> In an American, wait a minute. In the American wait, wait. dictionary, it doesn't say that. Well, <laughs> I, I wait, wait. I'm not an American. <laughs> yeah. I don't know why we're debating under Oxford rules, but He's I chose the Oxford for an dictionary. But you're, you're, I want to say to the side arguing against the motion that your opponents, who are arguing that the U.S. and China are long-term enemies, made an analogy with the Cold War in which the Russia and the United States never actually fought a war. So I think it's, I think it's fair for them to be making that argument that that, that constitutes enmity as well as all-out war. There is a rivalrous aspect of the relationship. It is growing. It is dangerous. And we have to work to counter it. But there is also a cooperative aspect to the relationship, whether it's climate change or fighting Ebola together or in peacekeeping missions. We work together very closely in a way that we never did with the Soviet Union when we were containing it. We weren't educating the best and brightest Soviet minds. John Mearsheimer. I want to respond to Robert's point. He, he's correct 
that when you look at economic intercourse, uh, it's not a rivalry. Uh, it's at the security level that there's a rivalry. And that's why it's not good to compare it to the Cold War, as he pointed out. But what you want to compare it to is the pre-World War I period, because there was a tremendous amount of economic intercourse in Europe before World War I. But this was also an intense security competition which centered around Germany. And I think the argument that Peter and I are making is that the security competition will eventually overwhelm the economic cooperation that you correctly described. Is there a reason, Kevin Rudd, for why it's different with China, why that doesn't have to be inevitable with China? To flip out of a question which John has asked, but not we haven't answered, and I'll, I'll come okay. back to the one you've just uh, put before, which is that uh, he said, point to us a period in history where his determinist theory hasn't applied. Look at the period after World War II. Britain, France, Germany, they've been at it for how many, how many decades, how many centuries, trying to wipe each other off the planet? Well, they decided finally, finally after 1945, that it was time out. A European Union was built. You may criticise its economic performance, but at least there hasn't been a war in Europe for 70 years. That's diplomatic intervention. In the case of China... All I would say is but the totality of the relationship has got as much difficulty in it on the security side as there is engagement in the other dimensions as well and now common security exercises as well. Behind the scenes, how do, how do they two countries now deal with the problem of North Korean nuclear proliferation? Let's bring that point to Peter Brooks. I, I, would, I would say that you know, countries try to protect and advance their interests. The United States is a Pacific nation. We have more trade with the Pacific than we do with, with Europe today. We have five sets of allies in the, in the uh, Pacific theater. We have defense and security uh, commitments. So I think the United States is trying to protect its interests, meet its, meet its obligations. Of course, putting into play human agency, the United States could move away from those commitments. It could move away from trying to advance the interests of the American people in the Pacific. It could cede the prominent position to the to Chinese. That is certainly a choice. But I don't believe that nations operate in that manner. I would like to ask then what, what the United States should do. I just met Professor Mearsheimer backstage. seemed like a very nice guy. But you have advocated that the United States, in defense of its interests and to protect its current status, actively seek to harm the economy of China, a place that has brought hundreds of millions of people out of absolute poverty. You advocate for dropping some of them back into poverty. This would hurt their medical system, their educational system. Is this what we want to do and be? Are these the sorts of methods that we, we have to use, that we are predetermined to use? Let me ask you a question. Well, he just asked you a question. Yeah, but, but, <laughs> no, but, but it's a That's the best way to respond it, is with a question, right? No, it's, a, it's a rhetorical question. If you were in Britain hmm. in 1900, and you had been watching Germany rise since 1870, and you were really nervous about Germany. And you could have hit a switch that would have slowed down German economic growth significantly. Would you have hit that switch, given what you now know? This is not an academic exercise. No, I don't but, pretend to know as much about Germany and Britain in those eras. I know a well, great you know deal about a th- China did you know and the United World States I, And then now. there was World War II, Real and they both surrounded no. Germany. Yes right. or no? We right. should undermine China's economy. All right, all right, all right. We're going to stop this a second. We've got World War III and, uh, here. And John Mearsheimer, I still want to hear your answer to his question. Wh- which is the question? You don't remember his question? <laughs> no. His question is... What would you do? And he says that you're talking about actually harming, harming the other side. No, if I was in a position 
to slow down Chinese economic growth, I would definitely do it. They think they own the South China Sea. They want Taiwan back. They want the Sinkago or Diawa Islands back. This is not a status quo power. And, of, of course, you know, the, let me, may, let, me let your opponents okay. respond. I think, Kevin, um, on the minds of every chancery in the world today is this. What will happen if Chinese economic growth stalls? That's the question today. Because it actually sucks out what little growth there is in the global economy today. It sucks out the job opportunities which are emerging in Africa and Latin America and other parts of the world. And as a consequence, the damage to American jobs as a consequence of global growth going down and global demand for US goods and services goes down as well. That is the most self-defeating argument I've seen. In the period uh, leading up to the First World War, if you read, I think, the seminal text called Sleepwalking to War, published in 2013-14, it points to a chronic failure of diplomacy between Berlin, Paris and Vienna and London in the critical months of July of 1914 where diplomacy could have averted conflict. Kevin's spending a lot of time talking about diplomacy, and I, I appreciate that. And, I, and obviously, uh, diplomacy can play a very positive role, but I have to say diplomacy's failing. The state visit of Xi Jinping just recently to the United States was a very tense relationship, a very tense meeting. Uh, talking about cyber, the Chinese have pilfered personal information of 20-plus million American government employees, including myself. Um, and, of course, this issue of the, uh, of the South China Sea. So nobody doubts that diplomacy can have a positive role, but I'm telling you today, based on all the things that I've told you, that diplomacy is failing. I'm John Donvan. Questions from the audience and the results of tonight's debate still to come on Intelligence Squared U.S. I want to remind you that we are in the question and answer section of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan, your moderator. We have four debaters, two teams of two, debating this motion. China and the U.S. are long-term enemies. Let's go to some questions. Right down front here. I'm Ethan Bronner. My question's for your side. Is there not any change in the international order, the way countries relate to one another since World War II, World War II came up, that affects the sense of inevitability? Is there not something that says that countries actually need one another, that we relate to one another in ways that a hundred years ago and longer ago people did not know and therefore didn't affect their behavior? John Mearsheimer? I think the answer to that is no. And uh, I think if you look at U.S.-Russian relations today and you look at U.S.-Chinese relations today and you look at U.S.-Iranian relations today, those are three glaring examples that contradict what you say. When we expanded NATO and the EU eastward, we thought that international politics had changed, that realpolitik was finished, and we could get away with expanding NATO and the EU, and it would have no consequences. We found that exactly the opposite was the case, because Putin is a first-class realpolitiker. The same thing applies to East Asia. There's all sorts of evidence out there that the Chinese think in realpolitik terms. Well, even within the constraints of John's determinist theory, they are, real, they are real politic forces that speak against China successfully becoming a hegemon. It will be balanced against and deterred by the very strong countries on its periphery, sometimes in alliance with each other and sometimes singly. We, also, we already see China's aggression in the South China Sea and the East China Sea causing countries to draw closer to the United States Countries that in the past have been quite close to China, we see Vietnam, Singapore, Malaysia. So even within the system, we see balances that are going to constrain China. 
Let's go to the question in the back. Thank you. My name is Linda Drum, and I want you to ask you how you think the fact that China owns so much of our debt will affect our relationship in the future. And, and in terms of the enmity, is that a force for peace or conflict? Yes. Well, <laughs> right. I'm just trying to help you hone to the um, motion. This is a very interesting question. A lot of people are very uncomfortable with the fact that China owns so much of our debt. They're actually selling off some of our debt. That's correct. Robert uh, Daly. Many Americans think that China owns the majority of our debt. They don't. They are the second largest foreign holder of our debt. Japan just surpassed them again. For a while, China was number one. I think they have something like 7.6, 7.4 of total American sovereign debt. So does it have a little impact on the debate tonight about whether China and the U.S. are... Well, I think it's perceptions. Uh-huh. It's a perception. I don't think... I think most Americans are probably pretty unhappy about that. I mean, I think we're... Uh, our culture says that debt is not necessarily a good thing, and coming out of difficult economic times, I think people are probably uncomfortable But it's, to it's a little people. hard to blame China for that. No, I'm not blaming... I'm not blaming China for that. But I think what an interesting point is, going back to what they criticized John about... The money that China makes in the United States goes to a lot of things, including their military modernization. And I was kind of rushed through my list there, but I want you to make sure you understand that over the last 25 years, China has had an average of double-digit increases. That means 10% or more in its defense budget. Now, it's not the same as the United States, but this shows a commitment to increasing their military capabilities, which obviously will brush up against ours in the Asia-Pacific region. I think we just need a bit of context in this. The U.S. defense budget at present is around about $700 billion a year. The Chinese defense budget, based on the external analyses, not the internal analyses, somewhere in the vicinity of $200, $225 billion at the upper-range calculus. Secondly, the U.S. budget has been, defense budget has been massively in excess of China's for the last 50 years. You have nearly 10 carrier battle groups. They've got a clapped-out Ukrainian aircraft carrier, which can barely make it out to sea, let alone back. It doesn't have a single carrier battle group. It's, got a, it's uh, developing its submarine capability. But let me tell you who I'd be backing any day of the week and for the next 30 years plus. John Mearsheimer. Yeah, but that doesn't contradict Peter's point. If you oh, go I think back... It some way towards it. No. If if you go back to 1980 and you look at the size and quality of the Chinese military and you compare it to the size and quality of that military today, there has been a fundamental change. It's a much more formidable military. And what we're talking about here is what's going to happen over the next 20, 30, 40 years. It's going to build a military that's probably the equal, if not the superior, of the United States. Well, I think it diverts a a further response again. There is a thing called demography, John. The ageing the Chinese population, the workforce began shrinking three years ago. The pressure on the Chinese budget for the next 30 years in terms of looking after old people is going to start to rival that. Uh, of the Western world. As they say in China, we're going to get old before we get rich and powerful. Can I say this will be a huge constraint on military outlays as well. Yeah. Peter Brooks. I mean, I, I, you know, Peter Brooks. Kevin, you know, uh, facts are inconvenient and stubborn things sometimes. But when you talk about the you defense budget... You mean the one I budget, just mentioned? Well, you talk about the defense budget, the United States is also in war. China is not at war. Also, the Chinese, most of the Chinese budget, a lot of the Chinese budget is not included in uh, these figures. That's They're, why the, the external right. calculations and it's a lot cheaper this. to build things in China than the United States. I use but the, the external numbers, not the Chinese China numbers. China will have 300 modern submarines, ships uh, in the Pacific region, and the United States will have 180. And as a Soviet general once reminded me, there's a certain quality in quantity. Another question. 
Right on the edge there. Uh, Don Laurie. Uh, State Roy, a former ambassador to China, asked the current premier of China, what are your two biggest problems? He said, uh, how do I feed one and a half billion people every day, and how do I ensure a certain level of employment? So what should the relative leaders of these countries be thinking about the issues we're talking about? John Mayer, Chairman. Well, very quickly, my argument is that for purposes of Chinese security, what the Chinese should think about doing is dominating Asia the same way we dominate the Western Hemisphere. I think they'd be foolish to do otherwise. And I know all sorts of Chinese who agree with that. What should we do? My point is that the United States of America should make sure we don't have a peer competitor. And if China continues to rise, I think the United States will continue to pivot to Asia, and we will do everything we can to check China. Is this a tragic situation? I think the answer is yes. But nevertheless, I think it's inevitable. Robert Taylor. The United States must make sure that we do not have a peer competitor for our security. Think about what this means. This is a brutalist philosophy. The proposition is that even if China were to change in some of the ways that proponents of engagement have been said that we hope it changes, even if they just, as a thought experiment, adapted our constitution and our laws wholesale, we should still try to limit their growth merely because we shouldn't have a peer competitor. We must stop them even if it means pushing them back toward poverty. Have I I misunderstood the proposition? I I don't mean this question cynically or sarcastically, but what's wrong with that? I I think that we're better than that. I think that it flies in the face of the values uh, that we have been preaching to the rest of the world uh, for the past 200 years. We have been giving them a very careful text about how some form of liberal democracy, uh, pluralistic uh, political institutions, capitalism and markets will help them to flourish. John, if I don't misunderstand you, you're saying that that's just not true. This is liberal hogwash? No, the highest value a state can have is survival. That's the lowest value. That's that's the precondition. This is, I'm talking about flourishing. No, I agree with you that it's a precondition, but the mere fact that it's a precondition for pursuing all your other interests means that it is, by definition, the most important goal. But here we sit surviving, and they're surviving in in Beijing now. Haven't we moved beyond that? All right. What I'd like to do here is something that we to summarize this round. It's a round that we introduced a few debates back that we call the lightning round, in which each debater gets 30 seconds to make or respond to a point with a little bit of rebuttal built into it. And it's firmly timed with a bell that comes at the end of the 30 seconds. And I, I pardon me? Somebody said something in my... Oh, I'm sorry. I meant to call it the volley round. We've, we've been working through a series of names and... Somebody just mysteriously spoke into my ear. In fact, the person who's telling me to say everything I say tonight, every word of my mouth. (laughs) Think of me as Elmo with a hand in my body. (laughs) We call it the volley round. And at the volley round, each debater gets 30 seconds. It's closely timed. They have to stop talking when the bell rings, and then the other side gets to speak. And I think the question I'm going to put sort of summarizes where, where we are and the kind of argument that we heard. I'm going to go first to this side. But I think the proposition kind of boils down to this, that your opponents are saying that self-interest, economic self-interest, ultimately is going to be a more powerful force than superpower rivalry and, and power ambitions. That no, both we didn't China, actually say that. Pardon me? That's not our argument. Oh, all right. Well, well, well correct me. Maybe it should no, be. 
That was Robert. That was Robert's first point. It was a point. It wasn't was Robert's yeah. argument. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, let's not say it sums up your argument. Thank you. That's better. Let's say an important point that you made this evening was that. Uh, there's just too much economic self-interest for both sides to risk letting things fall apart to the point of all-out hostility and conflict. Which of you would like to respond to that first? After they start talking, I'll come to this side. John Mearsheimer, your 30 seconds starts okay. now. Okay. Well, the economic interdependence argument, which John was just laying out, says that prosperity is of enormous importance. The story that I was telling is a story about security. And In the security story, what matters most is survival. So it's a trade-off between survival on one hand and prosperity on the other. And my argument is that when those two come head-to-head, survival wins every time. Robert Daly. Robert Daly, your 30 seconds starts now. Remember that the United States and China have successfully managed frictions of this kind for 37 years. We have a record through diplomacy, through trade, sometimes through confrontation, through engagement, and through restraint. Even after the Tiananmen Massacre of 1989, even after we bombed China's embassy in Serbia in 1999, even after their hot dog pilot hit our plane and they took our crew, basically, hostages at Hainan Island in 2001, we did not become enemies There's no need to do it in the future. Peter Brooks. I'm surprised John didn't take this argument because it turns out that economic interdependence between countries empirically is a very weak variable, and it doesn't prevent countries from going to war. World War I is a perfect example. As I recall, Britain and Germany were each other's largest trading partners. The United States was a major trading partner of Japan before World War II. It does not always prevent people from going to war or for hostilities from breaking out. It's a weak variable, and it would be silly to depend on the idea that countries, that nationalism and other security issues won't trump economic interdependence. Kevin Rudd. Economic interdependence helps, but it is not the final answer to this question. I think we're all agreed on that. What is important is to have sufficient commonality of security interests long-term to have a diplomacy which can secure a path up the middle which doesn't go to the binary of capitulation or war. We believe diplomacy is capable of doing that. And if we look around the world today, what are the Chinese and the Americans doing? They're talking about North Korea and nuclear weapons. That's a big example of how they can do it, and I believe the two are not mutually exclusive. Kevin Rudd, thank you. And that concludes round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate where our motion is China and the U.S. are long-term enemies. Now we move on to round three. Round three, each of the debaters makes a closing statement. Here to summarize his position for the motion, China and the U.S. are long-term enemies, Peter Brooks, member of the U.S.-China Economic and Security Review Commission. Thank you. China often speaks of 100 years of humiliation at the hands of outside powers, from the Opium Wars in the 1840s to the standing up of the People's Republic of China in 1949. It's my sense that China never plans to experience that again, and are making steps to do so. It plans to return China to its former glory as the Middle Kingdom. This is what President Xi Jinping has talked about when he talks about the China dream. The major obstacle to achieving that is the United States. As a result, as evidenced by areas of disagreement 
and the buildup of military forces, China and the United States are in an intense struggle for power and influence that could lead the, lead the two of them to the first great power war in 70 years. It could happen. Whether we like it or not, China and the United States are enemies in the category of U.S.-Iran, U.S.-North Korea, and the New York Giants and the Washington Redskins. <laughs> it's that serious. Until one side gives up its challenge to the status quo, or the other side acquiesces to the challenger's rise, it's going to be that way. In my opinion, that's not likely to happen. The China that our opponents have talked about is not the China of the past. It's a superpower. That means that, the China, that China and the United States are long-term enemies. And I recommend that you vote for this motion. Thank you very much. Thank you, Peter Brooks. And the motion is China and the U.S. are long-term enemies. And here to make his statement against this motion, Robert Daly, director of the Kissinger Institute on China and the United States at the Wilson Center. John Mearsheimer admits in his writing that social science theory is a crude instrument. Those are his words. But even if it were a far more precise instrument, it would still be only one of the tools in a very large toolkit that we have at our disposal, a toolkit that includes deft creative diplomacy, economic and political levers, our moral sense, consideration for the opinions and the interests of other nations, and common concern for transnational threats like climate change and pandemics. All of these instruments, if we wield them properly, will enable us to manage this relationship such that we do not become enemies, and we are not enemies now. We are not helpless witnesses to the unfolding of grand historical laws. It's a dangerous world, but it's not a risk board. We must build and position our forces wisely, yes, but we must not reduce our collective life to a brutalist survival imperative. I work at a think tank. It's sometimes hard to explain to my kids what I do with this. I'm not a fireman or a policeman, and they ask. So I just say, well, I work all day to try to make sure that the United States and China don't fight. And as I was getting ready for this debate the other night, uh, my second son, Mateo, who was, who was born in China uh, and grew up there for six years, born to a Chinese mother, said, Dad, if we fight, who would I fight for, China and Amer- or America? And I said, well, you'd, you'd fight for America, bub. But it need not come to that. It need not come to that. That is our position. We are not, nor are we destined to become enemies, and we encourage you to vote against the motion. Thank you. Thank you, Robert Daly. And that motion is China and the U.S. are long-term enemies. And here to make his closing statement in support of the motion, John Mearsheimer, the R. Wendell Harrison Distinguished Service Professor of Political Science at the University of Chicago. Thank you, John. Uh, As I said early on, you can't talk about the future without a theory, and I think that they have a theory, and it revolves around agency or diplomacy. Uh, They believe that the competition can be managed. But I want to ask you this. When you look at American diplomacy over the past 20 years, does that give you confidence? (laughs) Seriously. Does that give you confidence that American leaders can manage this relationship over the next 30 or 40 years? You know about Afghanistan. You know about Iraq. You know about Libya. It seems to me the United States has the Midas touch in reverse. It's really quite remarkable. And for their theory to work, not only do you need 
Bismarck after Bismarck after Bismarck on our side, but you also need it on the Chinese side. And just to add to the problem, we have lots of allies out there who could drag us into a war. We could have some crazy Filipino or some crazy Japanese leader or somebody who acted irrationally. There are a lot of moving pieces out there. There are a lot of ways you can get into a war. Look, you should vote for us not because it makes you feel good about the situation. You should feel very depressed about this. This Really, really. This is a very depressing conclusion that he and I are putting forward. I love going to China. I love the Chinese people, and I hate to say what I've said up here tonight, but if you have any hope of managing the situation, you want to be realistic about where we're headed. Thank and you, they John are Mershire. not realistic. Your time is up. Thank you. The motion is China and the U.S. are long-term enemies. And here to make his summarizing statement against the motion, Kevin Rudd, president of the Asia Society Policy Institute and former prime minister of Australia. As a former prime minister of one of your closer allies uh, in the Pacific, <laughs> and therefore one of those moving pieces which could get you into all sorts of trouble, and I remind you, your oldest continuing ally in the 20th century and into the 21st, in a country which has fought with you in every war in the last century, comma. Uh, (laughs) I think we deserve to have a voice at the table on these questions. And I say that because uh, uh, we have a deep affection for the United States for a whole bunch of reasons. Uh, Your civil tradition, uh, the celebration of democracy, your economic creativity. This is a tough debate because we're dealing with something brand new, the rise of a country which is not English-speaking, which is not Western, which is not a democracy, and is on the verge of becoming the largest economy in the world. I get the complexity. I've been working with this country in one capacity or another for the last 35 years, either as a student, an academic, in business, as a member of parliament, as a foreign minister, as a prime minister. And the complexity is staring at us in the face every day because we're your ally in the region. But I say this. There is nothing determinist, nothing sketched into the the skies above which says that the United States and China are and therefore will be long-term enemies. There is, in my view, nobody of any serious position in either Washington or Beijing who wants war. I've met most of these folks over the last decade. The challenge of diplomacy is to ensure that we prevent that from happening. I believe we can. For your kids' future, I ask you to vote against the proposal. Thank you, Kevin Rudd. And that concludes our closing statements. So... It's all in. Our motion is this. China and the U.S. are long-term enemies. We had you vote twice before the debate and once again afterwards, and it's the team whose numbers have changed the most between the two votes who will become and be declared our winner. Let's look at the first vote. In the opening vote, 27% agreed with the motion that China and the U.S. are long-term enemies. 35% were against. 38% were undecided. 
Those are the first results. Let's look at the second result. The team arguing for the motion that China and the U.S. are long-term enemies. Their first vote was 27%. Second vote was 32%. They pulled up five percentage points. That is now the number to beat. Let's see the team against the motion. Their first vote was 35%. Their second vote was 56%. They pulled 21 percentage points. That means the motion, China and the U.S. are long-term enemies has been defeated, and the team arguing for that side is our winner. Our congratulations to them, and thank you for me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared U.S. We'll see you next time. This Intelligence Squared U.S. debate was held in front of a live audience at the Kaufman Center in New York City. Dana Wolf is our executive producer. Robert Rosencrantz is chairman. Taylor Quimby and Rob Christensen are the radio producers. Damon Whittemore is the engineer. Clea Chang is director of production. Chris Kamakawa, director of research. And I'm your host, John Donvan. For more information or to purchase tickets to future events, visit us at iq2us.org. These debates are made possible by generous contributions from listeners like you and with support from the Connor Davis Family Foundation, Van Greenfield, Thomas Campbell Jackson, Christopher W. Johnson Charitable Trust, Ilona Nemeth and Alan Quasha, George L. Orstrom Jr. Foundation, Jerry Orstrom, Dr. Kelly Posner Gerstenhaber, Profit Capital Asset Management, the Rosencrantz Foundation, the Mortimer D. Sackler Foundation, and Daniel H. Stern. From Intelligence Squared U.S., thank you. You know that we have great advertisers that support the show and keep it free for you. And one of the reasons why advertisers love Intelligence Squared U.S. debates is that they know the show has amazing listeners. Right now, we have a survey that I'd like you to take to help us learn more about our audience. Just go to podsurvey.com debates. The survey will only take five minutes. We're going to ask you some questions about yourself and what you like to buy, but it's completely anonymous. Your answers help us find advertisers that are well-matched to you, your interests, and the show. And when you're finished, you can enter a monthly drawing to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Even if you've taken a podcast listener survey before, I'd like to ask you to take ours and help support the show. Don't forget that you have a chance to win that $100 gift card. Once again, that's podsurvey.com slash D-E-B-A-T-E-S. Thanks for helping us find the best advertisers so that we can keep the show free.